Good morning. Good morning to our MBCOC family and our many visitors here in the auditorium as well as online. Um, well, to say that we've lived in interesting times over the last seven months is uh, an understatement. But I've continually been amazed and touched and blessed by our church family's ability to adapt and overcome. And with that, we want to give a special thank you to Aaron Stevens. Uh, Aaron has been our youth minister for some time and kind of on the spot in the moment. He was catapulted into becoming our pulpit minister, um, in addition to the many duties and many things that he does on a week-to-week basis. And he does it with joy, and he does it with the determination, and so we're very thankful for that. And so we were blessed um, a few weeks ago to have the opportunity to give Aaron this weekend off, uh, an opportunity to get out with his family, um, to recharge, refocus, so that when he comes back to us, uh, he can hit the ground running. Um, With that, um, a friend of the elders, Andy Cantrell, was willing to step up and uh, put a sermon together for us today. Um, As times have been uh, interesting and intriguing, um, this also will be as it will be a virtual guest speaker. Um, And so we hope that you are blessed and that you are challenged by Andy's words today. And uh, we're just thankful uh, for him stepping up and doing this. I want to thank you for the opportunity to bring a lesson to you, and I will say that I'm sorry that I obviously can't be there in person because of the circumstances of of things going on these days, Uh, but I do look forward to perhaps someday getting a chance to meet all of you, Uh, and I am thankful that the elders asked me to participate in your worship and in uh, the upbuilding of each other with the Word of God. I'll start in just a moment in Matthew chapter 16, if you want to turn your Bibles there to Matthew 16. Let me tell you uh, where this sermon came from, what the title and the idea of it is. Uh, The title of this sermon is, Who is Jesus to you, and what are you doing about it? And I have to tell you that I didn't like the title of that sermon when I was first asked to preach that. There is a church across town that uh, every summer asked me to fill in and, and, and be part of the program that they do. And that was the, the title they gave me. Who is Jesus to you and what are you doing about it? And I kind of frustratingly began to think about how I would talk about that. But as I, as I worked through that lesson and prepared it, I realized those are two very good questions. Who is Jesus to you and what are you doing about it? Uh, I'll start by telling you the same thing I told them, and that is, I don't really care who Jesus is to you, and you ought not care who Jesus is to me. The first question should be, who is Jesus actually? We don't get to invent him, we don't get to make our own Jesus, uh, like Depeche Mode saying, you can't have your own personal Jesus. Um, He is who he says he is. In fact, Jesus asked a question one time that's a little bit like this here in Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to start reading in verse 13, and I know this is a familiar passage, but I would ask you, read it again like it's the first time, and let's think about what's being done here in this text. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? 
And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now, there's a couple of things I want you to think about with this passage. Number one, this is a template text. And what I mean by that, that is you can use this discussion that Jesus had with the apostles as a template for any Bible question. Have you ever noticed that when somebody asks a question about God or about scripture or just about truth, there's always a lot of answers, just like in this text. Some say this, some say that. And they're usually the wrong answers. But there is a right answer to questions that are asked. And that's the answer revealed not by flesh and blood, but by God. In fact, Jesus says, blessed are you when you find the answer that's God's answer, not man's answer. We should approach every question of scripture, every question about truth that way. Now, the question that he asks, who do people say that I am? Uh, I used to just not think very deeply about why Jesus might have asked that at this time and in this location. But I want you to notice in verse 13 that it says he was in the district of Caesarea Philippi. And until I got a chance to visit that part of the world, I didn't really see the significance of this. But when I got a chance to visit there, uh, Caesarea Philippi, the, the ruins of that city, are built up against a cliff, a big mountain. Out of the base of the mountain comes a spring, uh, actually a tributary to the Jordan River, a, a spring that turns into a stream and makes its way to the Jordan. The water is really cold coming out of there. They told us that. Um, I was the only fool that was willing to get in it, and they were right. It was cold. I'm, I live in Minnesota, and I'd not felt water that quite that cold. Uh, but because there's water coming out of a rock there, the ancient people built shrines and temples to their gods in that place. In fact, even when Jesus was alive at that time, it's a Roman city, Caesarea, Caesar, Philippi, named after Romans. Uh, there were temples to the god Pan, to the god Zeus, and probably seven or eight other gods. You can actually look this up online and see pictures of the ruins and the temples built into this rock. So when Jesus says, hear it from that multicultural, religious sort of center, Jesus said, who do people say that I am? In comparison to all these other powerful gods and all the things that men worship, who am I? And Peter gets it right. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. So it's important that we get that answer right. Who is Jesus to us? He better be our king. He better be the divine one who's visited us. But this question of who is Jesus to you and what are you doing about it goes a little bit deeper. And it is a little bit more personal than that. Let me tell you what I mean. If I was to ask friends that I've grown up with, who is Jesus to you? Some of them might answer like this. I had one friend that would say, Jesus is my 
homeboy. You ever heard somebody say that before? Uh, I went to school with this kid. I, I admired him because he was brave to, to just tell everybody that he loved Jesus. And, he, and if you said, well, what are you doing about the fact that Jesus is your homeboy? He's your friend. He would say, I've got this cool t-shirt, you know, that says Jesus is my homeboy and I wear it unashamedly. That's great. But the problem was with my friend is he didn't know Jesus. He didn't know anything he taught. He couldn't tell you anything about the teachings of the Christ. He didn't live his life like that. He just liked to talk about who Jesus was to him. And you know that that's not enough, right? Somebody else might answer like this. Well, Jesus is my good luck charm. Now, I don't think anybody would say that, but I've known people that kind of keep Jesus around them or in their life just in case. Uh, what are you doing about it? Well, I, I hang this thing around my neck that represents Jesus, or I get this tattoo of a crown of thorns around my bicep, and I'm not against any of those things, but I've literally walked into a house of somebody that wanted to learn about the Bible, wanted to know about Jesus, and I walked into this house one day, and there's a crucifix of Jesus hanging over the dining room table, and I said, I didn't know you were a believer. What's the deal with the cross and Jesus here in your dining room? And this woman said, well, that's there just in case. Uh, I think it probably keeps away evil spirits, and I put it in the house just to make sure we were covered. Well, that's not enough, that Jesus is our good luck charm. Let me get a little closer to home. If you were to ask me earlier in my life, who is Jesus to me and what am I doing about it? I probably would have said something like this. Jesus is the founder of my church. What am I doing about it? Well, I make sure I go to the right church. It's got the right name, does the right things. And though that's important, there's still got to be more to it than that, doesn't there? Turn with me to Luke chapter 4 for a moment. And let's look at these couple of questions about who is Jesus to you and what are you doing about it from this passage in Luke chapter 4. I'm going to read a little bit here, starting in verse 14 of Luke 4, if you would follow along with me. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him, and were wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? Stop there if you would. Now, if I was to ask the question of these people in this text, Who is Jesus to you? Did you catch it? Did you hear what they said? Down there, uh, after he preached and he sat down, verse 22, at the end of verse 22, they said, is this not Joseph's son? I have a question. 
How many of you know how tall Jesus was? They know. They, they knew exactly his height. What color were his eyes? What did it sound like when he laughed? Could you recognize him as a boy as he ran across the field because of his gait or because of his way? You see, these folks were really familiar with him. They knew all of those things that I wish I knew, things that I might not ever know until I meet Jesus someday. But their understanding and knowledge of all of those intimate details didn't really help them much in their life, did it? Is this not Joseph's son? There's a couple of things I want you to notice about this text. Number one, um, you notice that he had sort of created a, a name for himself around Galilee there in, in chapter, in verse 14. He had been preaching. Word was getting back home. I'm sure that he was doing an, an amazing job. I like verse uh, 16 when it says, as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. If you're a follower of Jesus, you should know that Jesus was the kind of person that it was his custom to be with God's people when God's people met. And if you're not meeting with God's people when they meet, you're not really keeping the same customs as Jesus. But there when he gets into his hometown crowd, the church that he grew up in, and he begins to read the scripture, he, he finds in the scroll what is our Isaiah chapter 61. They didn't have chapter and verse divisions back then. But he found this passage about himself, preaches it, sits down, and they're amazed at what they hear. They're all speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. So time out. I want you to imagine something for a minute. I want you to think about a boy you've seen grow up in the church. Somebody that grew up on the pews around you. You watched him as a child grow into a young man. And I want you to imagine that he goes off preaching around California, in your case, or wherever. Uh, and as he's preaching and teaching and doing things around, you keep hearing reports about what an amazing job he was doing. Like he was just knocking them dead everywhere he went. Um, or in Jesus' case, bringing them to life. Uh, but he comes home, he stands in your pulpit, and he preaches an amazing sermon. And he sits down, and you're all enamored with it. You're wondering, how did this happen? I mean, that's just so-and-so's boy. Like, when did this take place? Now, you got that in your head? I'm curious, that boy that you love, could he say anything to you in that moment or in the next few minutes that would make you so angry that you'd want to do to him what this hometown crowd wanted to do to Jesus? Skip down just a few verses to verse 28 and look at what it says. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. Now, I want you to be impressed with how amazing this is, how insane this is. He grew up there. This is his family, his friends. Imagine the boy that I just told you to imagine. Could, could he say anything that would make a group of godly people actually drag him out of the building and try to throw him off a cliff to kill him? Could you even imagine that? Well, what did he say? I mean, what is 
in verses 23 through 27 that made them so angry that they'd be willing to end his life. Now, we'll come back at the end of the lesson and see if we can answer that. But I'm going to suggest to you it might have something to do with the passage of Scripture that he quoted, that they would have known very well. Not just the part that he quoted here in, in the Gospel of Luke, but the whole chapter of Isaiah 61. Let's turn back there and look in your Bibles with me at this great prophecy, not only of Jesus, but of us. Isaiah is filled with prophecies concerning the Messiah, but one thing Christians sometimes miss is there are not just messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, there are Christianic prophecies. Lots of things that describe the church and the family of God and the people of God. And we need to get excited about what God was saying would happen in our lives and with our lives by looking at these passages. So, if you're in Isaiah 61, we're going to spend a little bit of time here. I want to give you kind of a quick outline of this chapter. Uh, verses 1 through 3 of Isaiah 61 describe the Messiah's work for us. What Jesus came to do for our lives. That's verses 1 through 3. Verses 4 through 11 describe what the Messiah came to do with our lives. Not for us, but with us or through us. Or to use our two questions for the sermon, verses 1 through 3 should answer the question, who is Jesus to you? What's he done for you? And then verses 4 through 11, what are you doing about it? In what way are you responding to this grace of God in your life to carry out the purpose of what he did in your life? So we're going to read verses 1 through 3, and here's what I want you to do while we read this. Find yourself in this text. You should be there. If Jesus really does mean something to you more than just the fact that he founded the church that you belong to, or you keep him in your life just in case, how would you define Jesus' purpose in your life and meaning in your life from verses 1 through 3? Let's go ahead and read that. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, uh, instead of mourning the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So... They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now, this passage is beautiful for all kinds of reasons. Obviously, verse 1 describes Jesus when it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's the Messiah. The Lord has anointed the Messiah to do what? Well, here's the work he came to do. So, number 1 in verse 1. He came to bring good news... To the afflicted. Is that who Jesus is to you? I have a feeling for some of you that's exactly right. You were born into a, a life, a family, a world where it seemed like everything was bad news. Every corner you turned where you thought you were going to get ahead, you just kept finding suffering and poverty and affliction and difficulty. Your parents didn't love you like they should. People mistreated you or abused you. 
And it seemed like everything that happened in your life was just beating you down until you finally heard the teaching of Jesus and you met him and you heard from him good news. Who Jesus is to you is the good news bringer to all of your affliction. Is that who he is? Let me tell you who he is to me. It's the second thing in verse 1 when it says, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. That's my story. How many of you have had a broken heart? I think sometimes when somebody asks that question, people only think of romantic relationships. Like, I was in love with somebody and they didn't love me back or the relationship didn't work out. But broken hearts are, are much more complex than just that. In fact, I think anybody who's lived for any amount of time uh, has experienced some sort of heartbreak. A lot of times it's not even others who break our hearts, it's ourselves. But they can be very damaging in a life. Let me tell you the first one I remember in my life. I was eight years old. I had a best friend named Chris. Chris and I were like the kids in the neighborhood that were sort of uh, awkward, but we just found home with each other. He never had front teeth all the years I knew him. I think he knocked them out because he was clumsy and they never grew back, at least while he was in my life. Um, one day, Chris told me that his family was being transferred from San Diego, where I grew up, to Texas. This was before the internet. It was before cell phones. Our parents weren't friends. And we just knew that we weren't going to see each other again. And I remember the last day we walked home from school together, we stopped at the corner by my house and two kids kind of hanging their heads, kicking the dirt, trying to say goodbye forever. Have a nice life. You too. And I remember when I turned to go home, tears started to fill my eyes and I began to run and I had trouble seeing and I finally sort of burst into the house and I just started bawling. My mom was standing there. And she looked at me and she said, Oh, honey, you have a broken heart. And I remember thinking something like this. Well, I don't want to have another one of those. And I was already beginning to learn how that happened. Broken hearts happen when you attach your heart to somebody or something. And this world is cruel. They leave, they fail, they get sick, they let you down. And it just, what's attached to your heart just rips it to shreds. But you know what my best idea was? I was going to avoid a broken heart by hardening my heart, putting walls around it, not letting anybody get too close, you know? But my mom wouldn't let that happen. She taught me that there was a God, a Savior, who could bind up broken hearts, keep them soft, not be hard-hearted, but, um, but be tender-hearted, like the Scripture would say. Still love, love deeply but know that it probably will break again. Who is Jesus to me? He is the tailor of my heart. He stitched it up more times than I can count. By the way, do you know why that was such an important lesson in my life? Two years later, when I was 10, that mother who was my comfort, she got cancer, and within a few months, she was gone. She died at 42 years old. And if I thought that I had a broken heart before, I, I was just beginning to understand. But you know what? If you were to ask me if Jesus is the one who's put my heart back together, what are you doing about it? Well, here's my story. Every day I see people with broken hearts. 
Every day I, I meet people who have gone through things in their life that have been nothing but affliction, nothing but bad news. Everybody's let them down. And I know somebody and something that can help them. Is that who Jesus is to you? I don't have time to do everything else that's in this text, but maybe he's the one that proclaimed liberty to your captivity. He set you free from your prison. Everything you tried in your life, you couldn't escape your anger. It was like chains on you. No matter how many times you counted to 10 or tried to redirect it, your anger had a grip on you. But then you met the Lord. He taught you things. And now you have a peace that passes understanding. Maybe your, your prison wasn't anger. Maybe it was something that you looked at on the internet or it was a substance you put into your body. But he actually set you free. By the way, you may see where this lesson is going. Do you know what the problem was back in Nazareth, his hometown crowd? They were never going to let that boy they were so familiar with get that close to their life. They were content to say, we know him, we knew him, we can tell you all about him. But the work that he came to do as a physician, they weren't going to let him do that. I want to show you the end of verse 3. It's one of my favorite passages about Christians in all of the Bible. Look at the end of verse 3 here in Isaiah 61. Why God was going to do this with our lives. Why, God, were you going to help us in these ways? The last part of the verse says, So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. You ever wondered why God chose a metaphor like that for us? oaks of righteousness planted so that others can see God's glory. I don't know how you feel about oak trees, but I grew up around them in Southern California and I love them. They're the best climbing trees, you know, but I kind of have a love hate relationship with them because as much as I love them, they're also kind of spooky. When it gets dark, they're ugly. They're all twisted up like, like the weather and like time has just beat them up. But isn't that a good way to describe us? Life has twisted us up. Here we all are with all the flaws and all of our history. And, the, and God gets a hold of us and solidifies us and plants us and puts us on display and says to the world, these are mine. And you should glorify me because of them. Who is Jesus to you? Let's read the second half of the text and talk about what are we doing about it. Starting in verse 4. Then... They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. And they will repair the ruined cities, the desolation of many generations. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks, and foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. But you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion. And instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. Now go back to verse 4, and let me ask you a question. If you could choose a profession... To describe verse 4, what profession would you choose? Rebuilding ancient ruins, raising up former devastations, repairing ruined cities. Maybe you'd say construction worker. Or more, more accurately might be like a FEMA worker when hurricanes sweep through you know, uh, the Gulf. 
or when earthquakes devastate places in the world. And after the destruction, come in these workers who pick up bricks and put them back together and, and restore the city to what it once was. Do you see what God was predicting about us Christians? Verses 1 through 3 was how Jesus was going to put us back together. But verse 4 says he was going to release us in the world to put the world back together. If God could open our eyes to the spiritual reality of where we live, buildings would be falling apart, even though it looks like such a nice place where we live. Bodies would be bleeding out in the streets. And until we get a sense that the reason we're in the world is to take these people, to take this world that's been wrecked by sin and rebuild it, then we don't know who Jesus is to us. Did you notice there in verse 6, the prediction was Christians would be called priests and ministers. Look, the priests and the ministers aren't the guys who stand in pulpits. It's every one of us who God has helped. In the Old Testament, do you think it was a privilege to be a priest? You got to serve God on behalf of men and serve men on behalf of God. You think it was a privilege? Absolutely. But you couldn't just be a priest. If you were going to be a priest, you had to be born in the right family. Tribe of Levi, son of Aaron. But what did this prediction say? What did this prophecy say? God was going to raise up a kingdom of priests from where? What's our heritage? What's our lineage? Verses 1 through 3. From the ash heap of humanity, from darkness to light, we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us from darkness into marvelous light. And he makes us priests. He makes us ministers. Go ahead and go to the end of this passage. And I'm going to suggest to you that the people in Nazareth were excited about this prophecy. They wanted to be the world rebuilders. They wanted to be a part of this project that God was going to do in the world. Look at verse 10 of Isaiah 61. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord, for my soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. Now, if you doubt that this passage is Christianic, not just Messianic, but about us as Christians, look at the language of verse 10. It's all New Testament language about our salvation. But I want you to notice what Isaiah prophesied God would do in verse 11. Like the earth bringing forth its sprouts, like a garden that grows up in the springtime, God was, in the whole world, going to cause two things to spring up before all the nations. Look at the two things. Righteousness and praise. I've been to a lot of churches, and it doesn't take me long to figure out that some churches are very righteous. Some groups of God's people, they live their lives morally. They are right in their doctrine. They got it all right. But sometimes I'll figure out that those right living people don't live lives of praise. They don't really talk much about God outside of the walls. 
On the other hand, I've been to some churches where that's all the people do. They're, they're God's, God's great. God is this. On their social media, they're always talking about God. But when you get to know them a little bit better, they're not living righteous lives. They're just acting like everybody else in the world. Did you know that those two sides of the same coin, righteousness and praise, have to go together if we're ever going to get God's work done? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Do your good deeds, righteousness, in such a way that people see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That can only be done because we live right and praise God. Now think about it. Righteousness without praise is only self-promotion. People think we're great, but praise without righteousness is hypocrisy. Neither of those things work. Who is Jesus to you? What are you doing about it? Now, go back and let's finish this lesson back there in Luke chapter 4. I want you to see what Jesus said to this hometown crowd with Isaiah 61 in their minds and why it was they would have been so frustrated with him. Verse 23, Jesus said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And then they want to kill him. What did he say? What he essentially said was something like this. You guys know me really well. But the only healing I'm going to be doing based on the prophecy are for people out there that aren't here. You guys won't let me do this work. And it just makes sense. Because there's a couple Bible stories like this. By the way, nobody usually likes when a young preacher shows them something in Scripture that they've never seen before. That's exactly what Jesus did with two stories. He brings up Elijah. And he says, remember the story of Elijah? Do you think there were widows in Israel during the days of Elijah? What do you think? Absolutely there were widows. Show me one Bible story where Elijah helped one of those widows. There isn't one. He helped a foreign woman. A woman of the land of Zarephath. Elisha. Do you think there were lepers in Israel during the days of Elisha? Well, certainly there were lepers in Israel. Show me a Bible story where he healed any of them. Only Naaman the Syrian was healed by Elisha. By the way, if you put that thing that Jesus said with the story of Elisha and Naaman, do you remember who told Naaman about Elisha? Was a little slave girl who'd been taken from Israel, living with Naaman, told Naaman's wife, oh, if only my master were back in Israel, there's a prophet there who could heal him. You know what Jesus just told us? That little girl never even saw Jesus do it. She just knew he could. Sometimes the faith of children is amazing. Let's finish this. Here's why this is so offensive. And I'm going to go ahead and say it, because I don't know y'all. If you don't know who Jesus is to you, if you can answer every Bible question about what Jesus said or where Jesus went, 
but you've not allowed Jesus to free you from your bondage or bind up your broken heart or preach good news to your affliction. If you're just as angry as you've always been, what good is it that you know all the Bible answers? Who is Jesus to you? When I moved here to Minnesota a number of years ago, this church was ready to get to work. We taught some people the gospel. They came to the Lord, and they had real problems in their life. And what happened here was some of those people began to teach their friends, and there were many Bible studies going on and lots of good work happening. And there were a couple of people that had been on the pews for decades, and they kind of crossed their arms and they said, how come I'm not getting to do any Bible studies? Who are all these new people around here? You know what the answer was? They didn't know who Jesus was to them. They knew more than the new Christians, but they hadn't let Jesus fix their life. Someday, through the doors of your church building, somebody may come walking in. They won't look like you. In fact, you'll be a little bit uncomfortable because of the problems in their life. But if Jesus gets a hold of them and changes their life, and they know who Jesus is to them, don't be surprised if they don't change the world right in front of you. And if that day comes, join them. Who is Jesus to you? And what are you doing about it? Thanks for your attention. I appreciate the invitation to preach to you. And I hope this has been helpful to you. Well, we hope that you were blessed and challenged by Andy's message today. I know I was. I think Andy left us with some things that we really need to strongly consider in the coming week and to step back and put a plan in action and actually act upon it uh, if we don't have one. If you yourself don't have a relationship with Christ, if you haven't given your life to the Lord and you haven't been baptized, uh, I implore you, it, it's not too late. And um, now is a time as good as any. Uh, see any of us, uh, any of the elders, any of the uh, church staff, if that's something that you want to do, uh, even in this environment, we can get that done for you. Uh, if you have struggles going on in your life or in your walk with the Lord, uh, please don't hesitate to reach out. If you need help, if you need prayer, if you need love, if you need assistance, um, don't hesitate again to find one of us in the church leadership. Uh, reach out to one of your brothers and sisters in the congregation. We have some wonderful people that will always step up and be there for you. Um, or you can even use the church app uh, to put a request in. We are so thankful for those of you that were able to make it today here to the auditorium, and we are so thankful for all of you that joined us virtually, if you bow with me in prayer. Lord, uh, we just are so grateful and so humbled by your desire for a relationship with us, Lord, um, with all of our brokenness, uh, with all of our faults. Uh, we are just so blessed Lord, to have leadership and love from you. Lord, we just thank you so much for our brother Andy and the message that he shared with us today. Lord, he left us with much to consider. He, may, he left us with a call to action. And Lord, I ask that you give us each individually the courage, the strength, the power, the might, whatever it is that we need, that we might answer that call to action. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. To God be the glory, great things he hath done. 
so loved he the world that he gave us his son who yielded his life and atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in and to God be the glory